are the Confucius Institutes in the U.S. truly closed? A report says some of them are back, but under new names. China's flood season is getting worse. So far, 85 rivers have risen above flood warning levels. More Chinese banks are having difficulty completing customer withdrawals. Some are even limiting how much money can be transferred. Two Chinese real estate companies present an unusual alternative to a cash down payment. For those that don't have the money, certain crops are accepted instead. And as Shanghai residents complain about a lack of state aid, the city has started urging locals to donate to authorities instead. That's in the name of supporting COVID-19 measures. Over the past few years, more than 100 Confucius Institutes in the U.S. have been shut down due to U.S. government concerns about propaganda and espionage. But did they really close the facilities? A new report by the National Association of Scholars found that Confucius Institutes have continued under new names. Dozens of American institutions have maintained their relationships with a Chinese Communist Party affiliate by opening up similar programs. The report says after shutting down Confucius Institutes, at least 28 universities replaced them with new, similar programs. Georgia State University from Atlanta is one of them. The staff running the new program are the same as those who ran the now-closed Confucius Institute. They came from a university in Beijing the former Confucius program partner to Georgia State. The two signed an agreement the same month the Confucius Institute closed. In Virginia, the College of William and Mary also replaced its Confucius Institute with a new program. It, too, runs the program with its former Confucius Institute partner, a Chinese university called Beijing Normal University. The two signed an agreement establishing the new program a day after closing the Confucius Institute. Along the same vein, Western Michigan University and its former Confucius Institute partner signed a deal on a new program one day after shutting down the Confucius Institute. The former partner will send Chinese teachers to support the new program. Major flooding has forced tens of thousands of people to evacuate southern China, and more rain is expected. According to the Ministry of Water Resources, 85 rivers in China have risen above flood alert levels as of Monday. In Jiangxi province, almost 500,000 people have seen damage to their homes and their lives uprooted. Roughly the same number have been affected in Guangdong. The manufacturing hub of Guangdong suspended classes, jobs and public transport amid rising waters and the threat of landslides. The heavy rainfall has collapsed roads and swept away houses, cars and crops. More rain is forecast for the coming days. Chinese authorities on Sunday issued the year's first red alert, the most severe warning, though they did not elaborate on what that means. China regularly experiences flooding during summer months, most frequently in central and southern areas, which usually receive the most rainfall. But this year's flooding is the worst in decades and comes on top of China's strict zero-COVID-19 policy that has strangled travel, employment and ordinary life in the country. After curbs on bank deposits and withdrawals started in Henan and Anhui provinces, several other cities have found themselves in similar situations. Let's take a look at what's been happening in recent days. 
In southeastern China, large crowds of people have been seen lining up outside a branch of the Dandong City Bank. They're all waiting for their turn to withdraw money. Other branches of the bank are seeing similarly long lines. One worker wearing protective gear was seen checking bank customer IDs and trying to maintain order in the crowd. Some of those in line said they arrived before the bank opened, waited until the afternoon, but still couldn't get their money. Another bank in Dongdong, called Dongdong Rural Commercial Bank, is facing the same issue. Locals say it's been the same way for over a week. Over in Shanghai, limits have been placed on bank withdrawals in the name of COVID-19 control. The curbs mainly apply to seniors looking to withdraw their pensions. What's more, banks there would issue a certain number of tickets per day to limit the number of people who are serviced. Shanghai Bank. Now, 300 ticket numbers are issued every morning, and there are no more after that. Reports say some seniors had to line up at two in the morning in order to get a ticket, and that some of those who arrived at 5 a.m. weren't able to get in. What's worse, getting a ticket still doesn't guarantee being able to make a withdrawal. Last month in Huainan and Anhui provinces, nearly 3,000 people were unable to withdraw money from their banks. Major state-owned banks in China are setting a new limit for e-transfers, and it's hitting a new low, down to only 1,000 RMB, more commonly known as the Chinese yuan. That's roughly the equivalent of 150. Bank customers were first alerted to the change at one of four major state-owned banks, the Agricultural Bank of China. When a depositor was making an e-transfer there, he says he was shocked to learn that the limit had been reduced to a thousand RMB. That happened in southeastern China's Guangdong province. The bank clerk also asked the depositor about his job and temporary resident permit during the transaction. The bank added that authorities requested the restrictions. That's to aid what they describe as the fight against fraud. New home prices have fallen, but buyers are still holding tight to their pocketbooks. In China's softening property market, desperate real estate developers have come up with an unusual way to attract buyers. If a buyer doesn't have the funds for a down payment, no problem. Some Chinese property developers will take wheat or garlic as a substitute, mainly targeting Chinese farmers. Two real estate companies from central China's Henan province are offering to let buyers trade garlic or wheat crops as down payments on property. For every pound of wheat, the developer will knock off about 27 cents from the down payment total. Up to $23,000 can be substituted with wheat. Cities across China have introduced hundreds of easing measures this year to revive the property sector. More common promotions include free parking lots or renovations. But widespread COVID-19 curbs have dented buyer confidence. Shanghai authorities are asking residents to donate to the Chinese Communist Party. They say the funds will go towards combating the pandemic, but locals say they're not happy about the request. Let's take a look. Residents in Shanghai are taking to Chinese social media to complain about a request from city officials. Locals say the city is asking them to donate to authorities in support of COVID-19 control efforts. According to one of the donation notices. Contributions should be made to a bank account controlled by a branch of the Chinese Communist Party. 
It's called the Municipal Assets Supervision Commission. One notice put out by China's Education Department suggested that each teacher donate at least $15. But the notices don't seem to have had the desired impact. Instead, some residents suspect the city has fallen into a dire financial situation. We think this signals that the city is in financial trouble for sure. Or else why do they need donations? They must be tight on money. The lockdown lasted for so long. I'm sure they've spent a lot. Though the more formal notices described donating as voluntary, many Internet users said they were pressured or forced to donate. Some of them received warnings, saying, it's not a good look if a few people don't donate. Some such notices also warned the receivers not to share the notice with others or on social media. They say it's voluntary, but in reality, it's kind of mandatory. You must donate. Those I spoke to this morning are all unwilling to donate, but they don't have a choice. Some Chinese Internet users pointed out that in other countries, governments issued financial aid or other incentives to the people. But in China, it's the opposite. One social media post asked who would compensate the losses that residents have endured. It also noted that authorities have not apologized for the harsh conditions and instead want donations from residents. Shanghai has suffered a significant economic contraction following the city's two-month lockdown. During that time, people were confined to their homes and factories were closed. The city's total retail sales plunged nearly 50 percent in April, while hotel and restaurant sales declined by almost 70 percent. Now in China, everyone feels insecure. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. The authorities don't tell the truth. The donation requests quickly became a hot topic on Chinese social media platform WeChat, but related posts started getting removed shortly after. In the latest episode of the Taipei-Beijing issue, Taiwan has accused China of bullying. That's after organizers of the World Cup in Qatar added back the China reference for Taiwanese ID cards after deleting it earlier. All World Cup ticket holders must apply for the Heia card used to identify fans, which also doubles as an entry visa. The island was originally listed as Taiwan Province of China, terminology that angered Taiwan's government and many of its people. Then last week, the listing was changed to just Taiwan, alongside with the Taiwanese flag, earning praise from the government in Taipei. But the move didn't sit well with China. Beijing's foreign ministry said Taiwan is part of China when asked about the change and calling the One China principle a basic norm of international relations. And as of Monday, the listing has changed again, this time to Chinese Taipei. That's the name Taiwan uses to compete in most international sporting events like the Olympics to avoid political problems. The World Cup organizers have yet to comment on the change. In response to the move, Taiwan's foreign ministry accused China of bullying and yet again using its one China principle to belittle Taiwan internationally and create the false impression that Taiwan belongs to China. Seeking to assert its sovereignty claims, China has stepped up pressure on countries and foreign companies to refer to Taiwan as part of China in official documents and on websites, with phrasing like Taiwan Province of China or Taiwan China. 
Is China an ideal place to live in? An increasing number of people voted no when they sought asylum in foreign countries. Data from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees shows that the number of Chinese asylum seekers increased nearly eightfold over 10 years between 2012 and 2021. Numbers of people fleeing China reached almost 120,000 last year, while the same figure was only over 15,000 back in 2012. But as asylum seekers pour out of China, where are they going? The answer is the United States, with Australia coming in as a close second favorite destination. Other than those from war-torn areas, Chinese asylum seekers are fleeing their home country during peacetime and at a time when the Chinese communist regime claims to have achieved moderate prosperity across the country just last year. Coming up, it's been almost 25 years since Hong Kong was handed back to Beijing. Days before the anniversary, the city's iconic floating restaurant has capsized in the South China Sea. And a Chinese naval base constructed right outside the door to the U.S. Former Director of Cybersecurity at the Defense Department, John Mills, breaks it down. Find out more in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. On the eve of the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover back to China, the city's iconic jumbo floating restaurant has capsized in the South China Sea. That's less than a week after it was towed away from the city. Here's more. The restaurant encountered adverse conditions on Saturday. It was passing the Shisha Islands, also known as the Paracel Islands, in the South China Sea. Water entered the vessel and it began to tip. Its parent company said no one was injured, but that efforts to save the vessel failed and it capsized on Sunday. The jumbo floating restaurant is almost 260 feet in length. It had been a landmark in Hong Kong for over four decades, serving Cantonese cuisine to over three million guests, including including Queen Elizabeth and Tom Cruise. It closed in 2020 due to the pandemic and laid off all of its staff. Aberdeen Restaurant Enterprises said the restaurant became a financial burden to its shareholders. Millions of Hong Kong dollars were spent on its inspection and maintenance, even though it was not in operation. The restaurant was towed away last Tuesday. The company said it planned to move it to a lower cost site where maintenance could be carried out. One Hong Kong businessman has made it his mission to preserve artifacts related to the city-state, especially from the time it was still a British colony. That ended in 1997, when the Chinese Communist Party took over the financial hub. Let's zoom in on those details. Every step up this staircase in Hong Kong is a step back to the past. Businessman Brian Ong opened the Museum Victoria City last year. It's part personal collection and part souvenir shop, a two-story time capsule of the territory's British colonial past. I think history is, is, is quite important to every individual, uh, regardless if it's good or bad. It's always a lesson to learn and always a experience from the past. Next week, Hong Kong will mark 25 years since the British handed the territory back to China. But for hobbyists like Ong, the past still lingers. His fascination has turned into a pastime, collecting things like stamps, banknotes and portraits. 
Among the museum's most precious items, a partially burnt British flag dating back to a World War II battle. Ong began building his trove when he was only 15 years old. These are all the newspaper clippings I collected as a teenager about the 1997 handover, which I consider invaluable because they took a lot of time and work to collect. This specific piece of news is noteworthy since it shows the Navy taking down the Queen's portrait from headquarters. Hong Kong is preparing for the handover anniversary on July 1st amid growing acrimony between the city's old political masters and mainland China. Britain has accused Beijing of breaking its promises following a crackdown on dissent after the 2019 pro-democracy protests. Beijing has responded with angry rebukes. Ong's museum may seem politically sensitive, but he's confident there's nothing here that would irk authorities. If you asked whether I think I'm British, I'd say definitely not. I'm a Hong Kong man. And that, he says, is a completely different identity. Next, how has the Chinese regime been growing its military presence around the world and even just outside the door to the United States? We sat down with retired colonel and former director of cybersecurity at the Defense Department to find out just how close the Chinese regime is to America. Here's more. John, also in the news a lot is the security pact with the Solomon Islands. But beyond that, it seems China's kind of building military bases or naval bases in other islands, too. So you just had an article out about the Bahamas. So tell us about that. Yeah, thank you, Tiffany. Uh, uh, distressing. Um, I you know, wove a little bit of my, my, my per- myself into this as a... As a uh, uh, a much younger, uh, as, a, as a child, uh, we in uh, 1980 uh, uh, did a family trip to the Bahamas, uh, a much more innocent time. Uh, now, roll the camera forward to current times, that same, uh, uh, we went back there on a trip in 2019, that same hotel is now owned by the, uh, it's departing the Hilton chain and is part of the, uh, it's owned by a Chinese company. And just sheer coincidence, it's essentially across the street from the American embassy. I'm sure just a coincidence. Uh, but there's also a, a little known, I mean, it is, there's nothing classified about it. It does exist. There's, there's a very uh, sensitive American naval facility for submarines in the Bahamas. Um, starting, uh, and I did, it, it goes back a lot longer than I uh, uh, realized, uh, Huawei, another civil military company, uh, was essentially, uh, as early as 2010, 2011, was essentially offering early versions of the Silk Road uh, to an impoverished government in the Bahamas. And the Bahamas are just, uh, it's ungoverned space. And uh, so, China is there in force with civil military companies. Uh, a lot of that data from that American facility, uh, I'm pretty sure, transits that network that's been provisioned by Huawei. Nothing good comes out of this situation. And uh, uh, essentially, just like the Solomon Islands, this is a soft invasion. It's taken place. A disappointing also fact, and this, this, is, this is true of a number of places, we don't actually have an ambassador in the Bahamas. It's what's known as a charge d'affaires, which is essentially an ambassador without credentials. It's essentially a, uh, a monitor or a uh, essentially, it's not a good situation. In diplomatic terms, it's a huge message to that country. We're uninterested, we're bored, and we don't really care enough 
about this country to uh, put an actual ambassador here. This is a very, very bad idea. And so given these dual use kind of civil fusion things that are on the island so far, could China maybe actually build a military base there and send carriers and have missiles? Could that actually be an option? Well, I mean, I don't want to sound alarmist, but who knows uh, whether that hasn't already happened. We're, we're, you know, we do have a facility there. That does not mean we have decisive, what we would call in military terms or intelligence community terms, situational awareness. So who knows that a, a containers full of uh, uh, pop-up missiles are not al- already parked on the island. We don't know that because, frankly, we're not paying attention. And uh, but again, it's a soft invasion. Everybody's going like with the Solomons. What's the big deal? I don't see bombs going off. I don't see, uh, you know, uh, Chinese warships tied up to the wharves yet. It doesn't matter. It is an invasion. And just if you see Chinese commercial vessels, if you see some of their quasi their coast guard and they have a number of iterations of what we would call a coast guard they have all these iterations of that that are essentially uh extensions of their navy extensions of their nation state and john you also mentioned how huawei has a very big presence in the bahamas and huawei's banned in the u.s right like most people can't buy the phones use the telecoms equipment there so if this sensitive submarine station is on the island, are all of those information also going through Huawei then? Well, if they're providing the uh, IT infrastructure for the islands, um, they very likely, uh, that data is very likely transiting over uh, uh, the IT network that has Huawei equipment on it. And uh, I, am, I hope uh, that uh, Department of the Navy and Navy the Service have done proper uh, um, a cybersecurity risk analysis. But uh, just from my own experience, being the former director of cybersecurity policy, strategy, international affairs, the Department of Defense, uh, um, uh, never assume these things that proper uh, risk analysis was conducted. And so going forward, what can the U.S. do, especially given how close the Bahamas is to, say, Florida? What steps can the U.S. do? I think step one is uh, an, an ambassador. I, I think it's outrageous that we would, uh, you know, it's a small country. It's not it's it's a poor country. That doesn't mean it's not important. And, and we should show proper uh, interest and respect. So. Step one, get an ambassador there. How hard can this be? I think there's, you're going to have a long line of people wanting to be the ambassador to the Bahamas. Uh, second to that, uh, that ambassador should be charged with asserting American interests, American interests. And part of those American interests are deterring and countering any moves by a uh, – uh, what you know, the current administration wants to use a variant of the Trump term of the great power competition. But uh, uh, any any strategic compete competitor like China, uh, I would call them a grave uh, a grave risk to America. But okay, we'll use the Biden term. Um, they should be actively actively asserting American interests. And on that note, John, what would the people of this country then like to see going forward if they're not happy with the Chinese presence? Well, in the vernacular, they'd like to see a little love from the Americans. I mean, showing up on a cruise ship and spending two hours uh, in uh, uh, Nassau or Freeport uh, 
that's not a fair, uh, that's not effective uh, uh, assertion of American interests and and respect to a to a, a neighbor, uh, or going to a, a Disney Castaway K or something like that, uh, which is uh, carved out. That is that is a that is a movie lot. That is not engagement engagement with the Bahamian citizen. So. Uh, with with uh, not a whole lot of foreign aid money, I again I have I have been personally responsible for uh, application of foreign aid in, in 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 foreign countries. You have to be very very uh, careful with what you give out and expect results. And uh, uh, so we just with a little money we could go a long way because they'd rather take they'd rather take our little money. And uh, know that we value and respect and care for them, than have big money go into the uh, pockets of the wealthy elite in the Bahamas, uh, who are and uh, and the people get nothing. That's all for today's China in Focus. And before you go, here's a short glimpse into this Thursday's special report. From friendly collaboration to deadly competition, the world's two superpowers are playing by different rules. In this special report, we take a closer look at how the U.S.-China relationship has evolved, where it's headed, and how it impacts every American. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus@ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics, and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live online worldwide. Registration hotline 188-477-9228. For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com.